The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 8 this evening. Remind you, when you're reading this portion of God's Word at home, uh, you'll want to go ahead and read the whole chapter. It really does fit together, but it is simply far too much for us to consider in one sermon. 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. The Word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. We'll be reading through verse 17 this evening which is also the end of the chapter. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. The word of our God. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, 
He pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she was to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river, but the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. Is this to be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon? There should have been a revival. After Elijah had mocked the prophets of Baal for their six hours of repetitious and utterly vain prayer to a non-existent God, Elijah offers a simple, dignified prayer to the Lord. Elijah prays, and the Lord answers the prayer with fire. And everybody is awestruck, and the crowd start chanting, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! There should have been a revival, except that there wasn't. Turns out the people only had a temporary emotional response, and they did not leave their paganism behind. They did not leave their polytheism behind. They did not turn to the Lord with all their hearts, even though the Lord had shown up and displayed his glory. Now, instead of the people being turned back to the Lord, Elijah, that great man of God, is running for his life. The the events that follow in chapter 19, both the passage we're looking at this evening, but Lord willing, that we'll be looking at next week, actually mark a very significant turning point in the history of redemption. We'll see that even more fully next week. There is a significant turning point in the history of redemption And not entirely in a good way for Israel. But they will carry out all the way up until the coming of Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant. Tonight we're going to look at this portion of God's word under four main headings. First, a great enemy. Second, a great grief. Third, a great friend. And fourth, a great mission. Let me give those to you again. First, a great enemy. Second, a great grief. Third, a great friend. And fourth, a great mission. We begin with the great enemy in verses 1 and 2. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time 
tomorrow. The impression given by the Hebrew of verse 1 is that Ahab offered a very excited report to Jezebel, but also that he offered a rather full report to her as well. John Woodhouse puts it like this. The king gave the queen a full account of what had happened on Mount Carmel. He told her about the efforts of her own dear prophets, the prophets that she's funding, the prophets of Baal, how they chanted all day. He told her about no voice, no answer, no attentiveness. He told her about the rebuilt altar of Yahweh and all the water that was placed around the sacrifice. He told her about Elijah's prayer. He told her about the fire falling from heaven. He told her about all the people falling on their faces and saying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. He told her about what happened to all her precious pagan prophets. Ahab told her everything. Now try to put yourself in Jezebel's shoes for a moment. Uh, don't, don't keep walking in those shoes, right? This is not someone you want to imitate, but try to understand where she's at. Jezebel had not traveled to Mount Carmel with her husband, but she knew all about the contest. And, and she's at home, knowing this is going on, several hours at least, and then suddenly the rain begins to fall. What was Jezebel thinking? Well, remember that Jezebel was not a Yahweh worshiper. She was a Baal worshiper. She was devoted to Baal, and she has no idea that Yahweh is the one who has sent the rain. So on the one hand, she would have been genuinely relieved. I mean, there's three and a half years of famine, and now the rain is pouring down. That is good news. Yet if we remind ourselves that Jezebel didn't know that the Lord had sent rain, as a devoted Baal worshiper, she probably thought Baal had. That in fact, Baal had been appeased on Mount Carmel. You know, Elijah had been shown up. Baal had won the contest against Yahweh. And now Elijah is either dead or he is bound. Uh, in her imagination, she must have thought that everything was coming up roses. <laughs> uh, the famine's about to end. The water's coming. And her great adversary, Elijah, has been ashamed. And Baal has been publicly vindicated in front of all the people. Well, if that's right, Ahab's words must have fallen like horrible blows upon Jezebel. Elijah and Yahweh have been dramatically vindicated, and Baal has been humiliated. The prophets of Baal were all dead, and Elijah's the one who ordered their deaths. Now, if you think that Yahweh showing up and showing off, that is demonstrating his glory, would have silenced Jezebel and led her to repent, to say perhaps Yahweh is the true God, not Baal, well, then you haven't thought enough about the hardness of the human heart in rebelling against God. It turns out that hearing and seeing of themselves are not believing. Uh, you know, when we've been looking at 
uh, Matthew in the morning. We just heard last week about Jesus going around Galilee doing all these extraordinary miracles. I mean, things that no one else has ever done. Opening the eyes of the blind, including a man born blind. Right? Healing the sick. Raising the dead. And the mass of people still do not believe. Seeing is not believing until Almighty God opens a person's heart. Jezebel neither repents nor is she shocked into inactivity. Instead of being immobilized, Jezebel springs into action. She immediately sends a messenger after Elijah, making clear that her number one priority in the entire world is that he is dead. As Walter Brueggemann points out, the motivation for her resolve is surely political, as Elijah threatens the authority of the crown. Elijah has destroyed the prophets of Baal, and those prophets of Baal were actually people that would legitimate the kingdom. That is how court prophets tended to work. Uh, This is the way um, civil authorities always try to address religion. They want religion, the priests, the prophets, and so on, to legitimate their rule. But if the prophets of Baal are found to be false, and they're put to death, What does that mean for her husband Ahab? And what does it mean to herself? The affront to the crown cannot go unanswered, Brueggemann writes. But the threat is also theological, for the political and the theological are deeply intertwined. We might want to add that it was Jezebel who had introduced Baal worship into Israel. And so if the people really have been turned back, and Jezebel can't know this yet that they haven't been, if they really are turning back to following Yahweh, it may not be so much Ahab that they go after, but this foreign queen Jezebel who has brought Baal worship into their land. The disaster from her standpoint that is taking place threatens her very life. So this powerful and ruthless queen is about to focus all of her energy upon wiping Elijah from the face of the earth. Elijah, indeed, has a very great enemy. For one thing, Elijah knew that Jezebel was good to her word. Uh, You know, when she took this oath, she doesn't swear in the name of Yahweh. She swears in the gods, plural. She's a pagan polytheist. But that isn't what concerns Elijah. Elijah knows that Queen Jezebel has already put to death hundreds of, of Yahweh's prophets. In fact, she has been so fierce against Yahweh's prophets that in terms of those who are out in the open, publicly working for Yahweh, Elijah is the only one left. So naturally, Elijah was afraid, and he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, Elijah is fleeing from Israel, the the tribes in the north, and actually Mount Carmel, which is way up in the north, and he's heading down to Judah. He wants to get out of the authority of Ahab and Jezebel. And Beersheba is a city right on the border, but it's a hundred miles from Mount Carmel, right? Um, Elijah's been a man on the run, and he's he's moving fast. He wants to get out of Dodge before Jezebel can get her hands on him. 
Here's an interesting detail. Until now, all of Elijah's travels have been at the direction of the Lord. Right? He, he goes and he confronts uh, Ahab, and then the Lord comes to him and says, now you go to the brook Kareth, and the Lord feeds him with ravens there. And then when the brook dries up, the Lord goes to Elijah, and he sends him to Zarephath. Remember, that's outside the promised land. That's in Sidon, where Jezebel's from. And he stays there throughout the time of the famine. And then the Lord says, go back to Ahab. I'm going to send rain. And even when Ahab runs, I mean, Elijah runs ahead of Ahab to Jezreel, we're told that the hand of the Lord was upon him. But now we have Elijah running without a word from the Lord. Uh, I'm not really sure what to make of this. On the one hand, Elijah is no longer moving about confident of the Lord's plan for his life. On the other hand, it probably goes too far to assert that Elijah is rebelling against God. After all, when the Lord does come to him a little later in the passage, the Lord sends him in the very same direction. See, see, this is like the midway point. He's traveling from Mark Carmel all the way to Mount Sinai, also called Horeb, in this passage. And, and so the Lord's sending him in the same direction. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of it, but it does reveal, I, I think at least, that Elijah's rather discouraged, and perhaps it makes clear that Elijah is panicked. Nevertheless, Elijah is still acting in a manner that is looking out for others. His servant, undoubtedly the servant that was with him on Mount Carmel, has traveled 100 miles with him. And Elijah says, take a break. Stay here. I don't want you to go out into the wilderness with me. And the Hebrew actually doesn't say he left him there. It says he caused him to rest there. Left is fine, but I think the idea of causing him to rest also just shows Elijah's compassion toward this servant and the fact that he is looking out for him. On the other hand, it does leave Elijah alone. In Elijah's mind, this is probably because he was already planning to ask the Lord to take his life, and he wanted to be alone for that. As we're going to see in the providence of God, the Lord was also preparing Elijah to journey to Mount Sinai as a second Moses figure. Please tuck that one away in your head. It is very important as you read through 1 Kings to realize that Elijah is a second Moses figure. It will help you understand the passages in much greater detail. And as Elijah does this, I mean, as the Lord does this with Elijah, he's going to have uh, Elijah retrace a journey that Moses makes alone up to Mount Sinai. Forty days and forty nights without eating food. Elijah's going to do the same thing. But I suspect from Elijah's standpoint, he hasn't thought it that far ahead. He's simply thinking about going out into the wilderness, not burdening the servant with his death, but going out in the wilderness and asking the Lord to take him home. Elijah was running away from a truly terrifying enemy, but it turns out in one sense this is the least of his problems. You know, at Beersheba, he's a hundred miles away from Mount Carmel. 
Uh, I don't think he's going out in the wilderness because he's afraid Jezebel's still after him. Right? Jezebel's not going to find him in the wilderness. But, you know, we have a saying that goes, wherever you go, there you are. And Elijah is bringing his grief with him. Where did that grief come from? Well, it came from the fact that people didn't repent. See, Elijah's entire life is wrapped up in the restoration of Israel as a faithful, believing people. Uh, you know, when we read the stories, because it doesn't take you very long to read 1 Kings 18 and 19, you can think, well, you know, one thing happened, another thing happened, another thing happened. Think about three and a half years from the time that Elijah confronts Ahab. He's out in the wilderness by himself at Brook Cherub. I mean, that might sound romantic to have ravens bringing you food, but I think it's you know, kind of a lonely thing to be committed to the Lord in that way. And then he gets sent outside the promised land while all this death and destruction is taking place, and it's all going to be worth it because when the Lord acts, he's going to turn the people back to himself, and Elijah is sold out for the sake of the kingdom of God. And then it doesn't happen. You understand how discouraging it is, not simply when your own vocation seems to fail, not just a private thing, but it fails in a way that the people of God stand under the condemnation of God for their ongoing idolatry. Uh, this caused Elijah nearly unbearable grief. Beyond this, we probably shouldn't venture. Apart from the normal problems of trying to psychoanalyze historical figures, when we're actually told so little about them and they really are at a distance from us, there are two significant problems with the very common approach to this passage of trying to psychoanalyze Elijah and then point out all the things that are wrong with him. Uh, first of all, as Walter Brueggemann points out, it doesn't fit the text. I mean, it may fit our imaginations, but this narrative concerns the restoration of a man of faith who, through the dramatic movement of the chapter, is carried from despondency to fresh energy and militancy. That dramatic restoration, however, is not accomplished here through psychological attentiveness. Rather, the transformation wrought through the narrative is by the theological, that is, God-rooted, ministrations. In fact, Elijah himself isn't so much called to understand as he is to receive of God's grace. Second, and I think of immediate importance to us, this is actually very practical to make application in your own life, both to your own heart and how we treat other people. Um, I say second, evangelical preachers tend to look down on Elijah at this point in life and point out all the things that are wrong with him, that condemn him. I mean, what sort of prophet just gives up? Ask the Lord to take his life. Well, Moses did, you know, uh, to pick a good example. Jonah, to pick not such a good example, but it turns out that being a prophet is a pretty hard business. What sort of prophet just gives up? And what is all this whining about not being any better than his father's? I mean, after all, what made Elijah think he should be better than his father's? And so on. In fact, it is much worse than that. 
All the people I'm going to quote from here are either famous or really highly regarded as Bible scholars. First, Merle Unger. Merle Unger calls Elijah a coward of unbelief. A.W. Pink stresses that Elijah ran for his own life, but not for God, nor for the good of his people, but because he was only thinking of himself. And Bernard Robinson writes, The panic that overcame Elijah when Jezebel issued her threat against his life has punctured his inflated image of himself. He has always seen himself as sweet, generous, and he cannot live with the realization that has come upon him during his flight that he is as other men. And I confess up front that this sort of reading of God's word just gets under my skin. Um... I want to ask these preachers, many of them are preachers, and Merle Unger's an Old Testament scholar, I want to ask them when was the last time that they stood in the face of the tyrants of their age and told them that they were in rebellion against the living God? I want to ask them when's the last time that they prayed that it would not rain anymore and God shut up the heavens for three and a half years. You know, Elijah did that. And of course, when's the last time they prayed and God answered that prayer by sending fire from heaven? Elijah did that too. I, for one, do not want to be judged by the standard that these men are applying to Elijah. This passage does not invite us to condemn Elijah. And I just want to point out that that's not what God does. Beloved, please do not condemn Elijah. Instead, look to see what the Lord does with this servant. The Lord, the one person who could condemn Elijah, does not give him a word of rebuke at all. Instead, the Lord graciously provides his exhausted servant with both food and drink. And then after Elijah sleeps, the Lord sends his angel to him a second time, once again to provide him with food and drink, and the beginning of a mission, a great mission. He's telling them, I'm not done with you. You have a great journey in front of you, but it is too hard for you to do in your power, but I am still with you. Arise and eat. This morning, we heard about Jesus being gentle and humble. Tonight, we are seeing what that looks like, in the life of one of the Old Testament's greatest men of God. Let us learn to be more like the Lord and less like Elijah's critics. Well, we should acknowledge that Elijah has both a great enemy and a great grief. But the author of 1 Kings does not want us to camp on Elijah's grief. Instead, he draws our attention to Elijah's great friend. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. And Elijah lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. The messenger from God touches him, commands commands him, 
feeds him. Food is given, a warm cake and water, everything needed, a reminder of what he had done for the widow. He is fed, surely comforted. He is nevertheless exhausted. He sleeps a second time, and a second time the Lord sends his angel and gives him food and drink. I do want to say something about the angel. On the one hand, the text shows no interest in the angel at all. But, But there's something that we should realize about just the way we conventionally translate angel that may cause us to miss something that's going on here. Uh, In the Hebrew text, by the way, this is also true in the Greek, um, the word simply means messenger. And by convention, in English, when we translate messenger, when Jezebel sends a messenger, we say messenger, malak. When God sends a malak, very same word, but that angel, that messenger, is a spiritual being, we translate that angel. The only problem with that is we can miss the parallelism that's going on here. What we're meant to see is Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah with murderous intent. The Lord sends a messenger to Elijah twice to bring him food and drink. But what we need to see here is the Bible is placing those two things next to each other and saying, look, Elijah has a great enemy. And Elijah has a great friend. And don't you know it? The good purposes of God, those are the ones that get established. Just think about that in your own life. And we can put this maybe a bit more precisely in an application to ourselves. It is not simply the fact that they're going to have adversaries and enemies in this world, and that won't matter. Um, I should say... Uh, thankfully, we're probably not going to have any enemies or any adversaries as powerful and as wicked as Jezebel. But you are going to have adversaries, people who do not want you working for the kingdom of God, at the very least. And they are going to be against you and against your purposes. And yet God is for you. And what the passage is teaching us is not simply that God's good purposes triumph. It's that God... God's good purposes triumph even when our own dreams and our own plans don't. Elijah's hopes for Israel being turned back to God in full are good hopes. They were good things to work for. It was a good thing to pray for. But the fact that that didn't happen does not mean that Elijah loses. God's good purposes for his people triumph in this world and he works all things together for our good. Well, I I know I've picked on the whole psychological thing, but I I do think that Richard Nelson makes an interesting observation at this point that doesn't really require us to psychoanalyze Elijah at all. Richard Nelson writes, depressed persons cannot usually be talked out of their gloom. Uh, That's probably worth us reminding ourselves of. Uh, when we talk to depressed people and we're going, oh, your life is so good, don't be depressed. That does not actually help. Depressed persons cannot normally be talked out of their gloom. What does sometimes help is a renewed sense of purpose. And that's precisely what God provides for Elijah with a new commission. 
Right? The thing that really helps Elijah here is not simply that the Lord feeds him, although that is a great blessing. But one of the things that really turns Elijah around is the Lord says, you have a great mission, and I am going to be with you in it. Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. Verses 7 and 8. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. The Lord is remarkably gentle with Elijah, twice giving him food and drink and not offering him any rebuke at all. Yet Nelson is right to observe, but the Lord also makes clear to Elijah that he still has important work to do for the sake of the kingdom of God, work that the Lord will once again give him supernatural help to accomplish. Well, we're not going to fully unpack that mission this evening. Lord willing, we'll take a look at the rest of the chapter next week. But tonight we have a bit of a preview. We're now moving over to the Lord giving Elijah a great mission. First, we need to remind ourselves that Elijah is a second Moses figure. That'll be very helpful to you as you read 1 Kings. Moses is the fountainhead of the great prophets. And Elijah is one of those great prophets who who has this big sweeping impact across the nation of Israel, also doing mighty miracles, very much as Moses does. I I don't think it's accidental that we see Elijah and Moses uh, show up at the Lord's transfiguration or being spoken of again in the book of Revelation. Once we grasp that Elijah is a second Moses figure, many of the connections will be obvious. Uh, We'll see more next week. First, Moses, like Elijah, asked the Lord to take his life in the wilderness because he was so discouraged over the rebellion of the people of Israel against their God. They actually shared this, this, this great pressure on their life because they longed for people, the God, people of God to be holy, and the rebellion wore them out. Here we're told that the Lord supernaturally sustained Elijah in the strength of his food to travel to Horeb, that is Mount Sinai, and to go without eating for 40 days. The Lord had already done something very similar for Moses. The the pattern there should be pretty obvious. Moses remained on Horeb for 40 days and 40 nights without eating while he was receiving the law. Uh, When Moses asked to see the Lord's glory, the Lord famously hid him in the cleft of a rock while the glory of the Lord passed by. And as we'll see next week, as Elijah goes up on Mount Horeb, he hides, as it were, in a cave, a cleft in the rock. As the theophany of the Lord, displaying the Lord's glory, passes by. Well, a great deal more can be said. Uh, in fact, I will say some of that, Lord willing, next week. But why is Elijah traveling all the way to Mount Carmel, from Mount Carmel in the north of Israel, the 200 or so miles to Mount Sinai, to retrace what Moses has done? To grasp the meaning of Elijah's actions, 
we need to reconsider that while Moses was up on the mountain receiving the law, the people of God were down below erecting and then dancing around the golden calf. I mean, you know the incident. It's famous. And the Lord sends Moses back down the mountain. And Moses has the, the Ten Commandments in his hand. Now, please don't think of those just as ethical rules. They are the covenant documents. They're referred to as the covenant. And Moses, he goes, he goes down the mountain. He finally sees what's going on. He takes the Ten Commandments and he breaks them. Well, Moses is quite reasonably saying, if God takes this law and applies it to this people, Israel is doomed. So that's good. Except Israel now has a problem. Is Israel no longer God's people? Are they no longer in covenant with the Lord? After all, the covenant document has been broken. But you know, um, in fact, the next thing the Lord tells Moses when Moses comes back to him, God says, I'm not going to wipe out all of Israel. That's sort of hypothetical plan A. Plan B from the Lord is, I'm going to send my angel before you to go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you, because if I go with you, I'm going to wipe this people out. Moses pleads with him, and God says, okay, you can come back up on the mountain. And this is where Moses is going to hide in the cleft of the rock, like Elijah. He's going to go up the mountain, and the Lord's going to pass by and reveal his glory. You know what the Lord says? Cut out two more tablets of stone. And the Lord, a second time, writes out the covenant document. God is renewing his covenant with the entire nation of Israel. Do you see what Elijah's doing now? He realizes that the northern tribes of Israel, having seen the glory of God at Mount Carmel and rejected it, they're doomed. Unless God does it again. He's making this trip to plead with the Lord, but the Lord will once again renew his covenant. Lord, in your mercy, do it again. How does the Lord respond? Well, for that, you're going to have to come back next week. Sorry, that's just how it happens sometimes. But think about that. Here's this great man of God, this great man of prayer, pleading with the Lord through all his actions for the Lord to do it again. How will the Lord respond? For tonight, I want to remind you of a very practical truth to take home. And that's to remember how the Lord treated Elijah when Elijah was crushed under the burden of Israel not repenting. My encouragement for you is twofold. First, let's learn to imitate the Lord in our lives and not the preachers who criticize Elijah. Right? The Lord is far kinder to Elijah than the preachers are. Second, please remember to preach that message to your own hearts. I, I've discovered that among ministers, yeah, OPC ministers, um, many of them find it much easier to preach grace to other people than to preach that grace to themselves. But God is calling you to learn to preach this message to your own heart. This morning we heard about how gracious Jesus is. Don't forget that. That's not something to tuck away in the back of your head and move on from. As you pursue Christ in the week ahead, 
Remember as you draw near to your king, that your king is gentle and lowly in heart, and he promises to give you rest for your soul. Amen.